This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hello, and welcome to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. My name is Austin, also known as Teacup. And my name is Shelby, also known as SheCup. Join us as we embark on unraveling all of your favorite mysteries from the Assassin's Creed universe. From Assassins to Templars to the mysterious Isu and more, we will seek to uncover it all. So join us, and maybe even take a leap of faith. Hello and welcome to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. My name is Shelby. You might also know me as SheCup. I'm super excited to be here today to talk about yet another piece of Eden. Isn't that right, Austin? Yeah, so this week we are talking about another piece of Eden, another kind of one of, of an obscure piece of Eden. And so we are here to talk about the Koh-i-Noor. You also didn't introduce yourself. I did not. I am Austin, also known as Teacup. <laughs> so this is the Koinor. What the heck is a Koinor? It is a diamond. And so I want to note that like normally when we're talking about pieces of Eden, there are specific pieces of Eden and then they point to artifacts from history and be like, oh, that was actually a piece of Eden. And it actually now falls into this category of Eden, i.e. the papal staff is actually a staff of Eden. This is not the case. This is kind of the reverse with the Koinor. The Koinor is an actual diamond. It is the largest cut diamond in the world. And where does it come from? It's It's got a long history, but it mostly, it resides now as a part of the British royal family's crown jewels. Specifically, it is part of the Queen Mother's crown. Now, in Assassin's Creed universe, the Koinor that is in the Queen Mother's crown is a fake. But in our real world, this is a diamond that is in the real world, that is in one of the crowns that's in possession of the British royal family. Correct. It is called the crown of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. So I'm assuming that it is the crown that is typically worn by the Queen Mother. Now, the current Queen Mother would be Queen Elizabeth II if she was alive. But it's also weird now because I don't know how the Queen Mother would actually work when um, the line of succession can include women now in it. It doesn't skip over the women. Right. So like it would be like when William is king and Kate or Catherine is queen and then if William died first before Kate or Catherine and Prince George then becomes king and Kate is still alive, she becomes the queen mother. That's the exact ah. same thing that happened to Queen Elizabeth's parents, King George at the time. He, um, I think George V, he, sixth. sixth, he died. Queen Elizabeth became queen. Uh, previously, 
George's wife, Queen Elizabeth, also her name, um, not Queen Elizabeth one or two, Queen Elizabeth Bowes Lyon. She then became the queen mother and she was alive like into the 2000s. They called her Queen Mary, right? No, that uh, was uh, King George V's wife was Queen Mary, uh, Queen Mary uh, of Tech. Why do I have all this knowledge? It's because I watch The Crown. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's very helpful here. You're welcome. So, given its name, I do want to say that the actual Koh-i-Noor probably has steep and deep colonial and very problematic history behind it. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, I don't know any really any information about the history of this diamond um, or anything at all. So I'm not going to speak on it, but I'm sure that that's the case. Yes, just based on its name, because that's not a English, British English name. And in the Assassin's Creed history, it has very big ties into Africa, into Eastern Europe, and into India. Right. Which I was going to say, are all call parts of the world that are heavily colonized by Britain. Right. So I do have some information on the real Koh-i-Noor diamond, if you would like me to talk about that. Of course. So this information is from Wikipedia. I'm summarizing it a little bit. But um, the Koh-i-Noor diamond came into possession of the British royal family under Queen Victoria's reign. Surprising, not. Um, and it was first used in the crown of Queen Alexandra, who was the wife of Edward VII. And it was used to crown her at their coronation in 1902. The diamond was then transferred to Queen Mary's crown in 1911. And then again to the Queen Mother, who was Elizabeth II's mother in 1937. When the Queen Mother died in 2002, the crown was placed on top of her coffin for her lying in state and her funeral and all of that. So that crown will now be worn by Camilla <clears throat> following the coronation of Charles. I have thoughts on Camilla. If you would like to hear them come into our discord. Yes. Suffice to say, I'm not a fan. Yeah. I'm sorry to any English people out there who like Camilla. <laughs> I well, know like, you're like part of the 1%, but whatever. This is very interesting because, and I think this is a possibility. So Camilla is queen consort now she is queen consort technically i mean technically her role is the queen so she will be the next queen mother if charles dies first no because she's not the mother of william and harry i guess that's true but is it i, I guess it comes weird because i feel like mar marriage is more important than blood i guess in this scenario i agree with that that's why she's called the queen yeah but she's not the mother she's not the mother of the lineage right i do not think william would be okay with calling camilla queen mother yeah and i don't know what happens to camilla this is a huge tangent like if charles died first i don't know what happens to camilla like she's only a royal by marriage right i mean i guess it comes back to like you know we have these more ancient definitions of marriage of like property and being coming into the family and other things like that. If this were the case in like take back, even as most recent as um, Queen Victoria or go all the way back to Elizabeth I, she might not be called queen mother, 
but she would still be like under the protection of the royal family because they were in fact married. Yeah, I guess that's fair. But so, I'm so sorry for getting us off on this huge, ginormous tangent. No, that's fine. Um, it's good context. So this diamond is under the protection of the British royal family, which it does come into the, this is a big deal because of the British, the association with England and Britain and the Templars. So there, I signed it in a way. Also, I'm not sure. I think King, I think King Charles might be a Templar. Um, but the third, yeah. Well, I guess Assassin's Creed Mirage will just have to tell us. Yeah, they'll have to tell us. We'll have to know. All right. So let's go back into the early history, back to the Isu era. The diamond first belonged to Juno, our agent of destruction and chaos, who would use it to destroy the humans who assassinated her father, Saturn. We talked about that on the Juno episode. At some point after this, the Koinor would fall into the hands of the Isu Durga, who would somehow transfer her consciousness into the artifact. All right, folks, you heard it here. This is piece of Eden number three that we know someone has transferred their consciousness into. So I've never heard of this Isu before. Durga is their name. Yes. Is this a woman? Yes. What game does this information come from? It comes from a comic. We don't re- we don't have a lot about her other than her relationship to the Koinor. I see. Okay, continue. Yes. Um, and then at that point, the Koinor in time would just pass through several dynasties on the Indian subcontinent. So fast forward a long time from like 50,000 BCE to 1800 CE, almost 60,000 years, fast forward 60,000 years to the Ottoman Empire. So in the early 1800s, the diamond was in the hands of Sultan Selim III, a Templar agent known as the Black Cross would attempt to steal it, but would fail and be reported missing. So in response in 1809, Napoleon will send Jean van der Graaff to steal the piece of Eden. However, he also failed and was imprisoned by the Sultan. So the Sultan is not a friend to either group. So the assassins also attempt to steal the diamond. Uh, Graf would escape and steal the diamond before they could. Now, I think it's important to know, we'll talk about its powers later, but the reason that both groups are so much after this diamond is because it can be used to locate other pieces of Eden. Wow, that's a really big deal. That's super valuable. Yes, the big, I- it would be a big game changer for either side. I feel like every time you present a new piece of Eden to me, I'm like, wow, that's so important. That's so OP. How can it get more powerful than this? And then the next week you have another one. And then the next week you have another one. And it's just never ending. So this, there is a lot of history around the Koinor that we'll get into later, but it is probably the strongest piece of Eden, the most powerful piece of Eden that can be used by an individual. Out of all of them? Yes. Wow. That's really where it is in the Ottoman Empire. It disappears for a while until we get to the Sikh Empire. And so eventually the diamond would find its way back to India into the hands of Ranjit Singh 
founder of the, of the Sikh empire. He is a little smarter than most people who come in contact with a piece of Eden because he's very wary of this artifact's power. And so he hides it away in the summer palace in India. By 1839, the assassins would attempt to steal the diamond again because they're not very smart. However, the British Templars would also be there to attempt to stop them. So during the struggle, the diamond falls into the hands of Singh's granddaughter. She somehow activates the diamond and she is possessed by the spirit of Durga. Mortified by the appearance of an Isu, the British Templars would attack Durga a stray bullet then hits the diamond and causes it to explode. After the aftermath, the diamond then begins to reconstruct itself and then ends up in the hands of the assassins. So here we have the first piece of Eden, an evidence of a piece of Eden that cannot be destroyed. It reconstructed itself. Right. It's really interesting. It reminds me a lot of like this is uh, this happens a lot in fantasy where like this evil big bad it appears and then you kill it and it comes back and it, there's like some fantastical magic thing that you have to dispel. And so I wonder if um there is anything like that that like the isu added to it or maybe if it's the isu consciousness that's making it indestructible. What do you think? I have my own theory, but I want to save it for the end of the episode. Okay. I think it's a good, this is a good place to kind of take a break as we're kind of entering into what's considered the modern age. And so let's go to our break and then we'll come back and talk about it a little bit more. Makose! Shoot! Shoot the flying demon! Malaka! Malaka! Malaka, I get the sense you two are ill fit for whatever it is you're plotting. <laughs> this one takes us for a fool, brother. We sons of Ragnar have this well under control. No, we do not. Sons of Ragnar, I know of many, but never have I heard of dull and duller. The first thing I have to tell you about is our Patreon. We do have a Patreon. We have a few patrons. And if you are interested in supporting us financially, you just love the show and want to support us, that's the best way to do it. And um, yeah, so join the Patreon. But if you can't join the Patreon, if you can't support us financially, that's totally okay. We completely understand. Um, but the next best way to support us is to leave us a rating or a review. And I do have one today. And this one comes from Rue, R-O-O-7557. And they said Sublime. I totally love it. Y'all also talk about specific missions, events, and historic places. Thanks. Thank you so much for your awesome review. Um, and you can leave a review if you're listening. Um, and we'll read it out on the show if it's a great review with five stars. So another thing that I want to remind you of is that you can join our Discord. We've got so many fun things that happen over there and it's a place for everyone so definitely come and hang out with us over there and the last thing i have to talk about is my playthrough of assassin's creed 3 um i have played this week actually a lot i um i think i'm in sequence nine i've done a lot of things i've saved george washington i went to prison I broke out of prison. I started a fight in prison. I did a lot of things in prison. Um, I killed another Templar person. 
I don't remember his name right now. I saw Haytham again. Um, I've done a lot of things. I've done a lot of things. Yeah. Um, also, I don't think you heard me, but Thomas Hickey is the person you give. Yes. Thank you. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So I've made a lot of progress. Um, I still really enjoy this game. And I still, I know that people love to hate on Connor and, and talk about how he's the worst of all the protagonists, but I really enjoy his story so far. Yeah, he can be a little abrasive, but again, he's like 20 years old. Um, but I really am enjoying his story. And there, I feel like there haven't been as many um, Assassin's Creed stories in the Americas. And so I just kind of want us to get a little bit more of that era in the future. Yeah, And so I guess it's a good point to think. After you play this, are you going to go to Black Flag or are you going to take and go to Liberation? I had planned to play actually the King Washington DLC and then play Liberation because they're all in the Assassin's Creed 3 game. So once I finished all of those, I was going to then move on to Black Flag. Right. Also, don't get distracted, but I, I can't remember if you have to play it or if it's optional, but there is a Benedict Arnold DLC that is part of that. Uh, it's pretty good, so don't forget to do that either. Well, if that's all of your thoughts you have about my playthrough, we can get back to the show. Me, Haytham. I come in peace. Why are you speaking so slow? <sighs> Sorry. What? Um, I, I was told you could train me. No. Go away. I'm not leaving. Bianca! Bianca! Is everything all right? What do you think? Look at this place. I'm poor Bianca. If something's happened to her... Aha! Oh, my darling. Thank God you're all right. Ezio, meet Bianca. Bianca, Ezio. Charmed. All right, so welcome to the... <laughs> the sass. Know, I, I, yeah, the I just sass. had to pause for the sass, sass of that. It was hilarious. But, uh, so, back to the Koh-i-Noor. So by the 20th century, so for those of you who don't like math, that's the 1900s, the Koh-i-Noor is back in Templar hands. It is in possession of the Black Cross Albert Bolton. Now the Black Cross is a special type of Templar. It is like the creme de creme enforcer of the Templar. It's held by different people across the time. The most recent one who took up the mantle was Otto Berg. And so his role, what he does, that's kind of like what the Black Cross does, for those of you who are confused. Albert Bolden, he comes into it. However, kind of like the Sith, the Templars are kind of prone to betrayal. And you he loses it after another Templar, Rufus Grosvenor. He loses it to this Templar after uh, Rufus murders his family and leaves him for dead. So yeah, just great character references here for this uh, other person. And he assumes 
the mantle of the Black Cross. Rufus then manipulates Spanish assassin Ignacio Cardona into using his DNA, his Isu DNA, to unlock the artifact. And he had a high concentration of Isu DNA. Cardona is successful, but he cannot control this power. However, because what goes around comes around, and if you're going to murder someone's family, you better murder them too. Um, just saying. Because a vengeful Bolden comes up and stops the whole process, and there's a confrontation, and, tr and attempting to stop it, Cordona unleashes the power of the Koinor again, levels the church, kills Bolden, kills Rufus, kills himself, and the artifact remains buried in the church. And this all happens kind of during a Spanish civil war, which I'm not that familiar with European history outside of like France, Germany, and England. So I'm not really sure what the Spanish civil war is about, but it was about the something. And that's, it kind of disappears again until the Templars get greedy again. In his own research in 2013, Juhani Otso Berg finds Bolden's connection with the Koinor and attempts to find a descendant to help him track it down. So he looks for three years. So by 2016, he finds Andre Bolden and convinces him as an old man to help them. However, the Templars and Assassins are not the only ones at play here. The instruments of the first will infiltrate the Templars and attempt to kill Andre. However, Berg stops them, and this is how he discovers this kind of hidden cell within the Templars and vows to root out the instruments, adopting the mantle of the new Black Cross. He starts hunting for the Koinor. In 2017, Juno, the agent of destruction and chaos, who just cannot leave well enough alone. I cannot say more bad things about Juno. I might hate Juno more than Anders. Um, Juno, as our agent of destruction and chaos, she sneaks into an animus, because remember, Juno just exists in the internet, while Charlotte de la Cruz, which you should recognize from our Instruments of the First Will episode, is using it. Because first instrument, instrument of the First Will spy, Mono, had sabotaged the Animus and rendered De La Cruz into a catatonic state. Juno then sees this as a great opportunity because she has little care for actual life or anything that actually matters, searches her memories and found that the Koinor was in Spain. And this kicks off a race between the Assassins, the Instruments, and the Templars to find the Koinor. And I want to stop here because I am now convinced that Phasm and Loki are good guys because they oppose Juno and Juno is the bad guy. Do you think that Juno is like the big bad of all Assassin's Creed? In her, in her fandom page, it does claim that. I think that Juno is no friend to humanity. And I think that she will destroy anything to make sure that humanity suffers for what she perceives as destruction and chaos. And I think she wants power and she wants to be on top. Granted, Juno 
is assumed dead. But assumed dead and dead are very different things. Heck, even dead and dead are very different things. Right. I mean, like we've even talked on this show about Isu who literally put their consciousness into pieces of Eden and then they live forever. So it, it to me, it's really hard to talk about being like fully dead. You know what I mean? Right. But I do think like, if Juno appears in a game, like it's immediate distrust. Like I almost think Desmond made the wrong decision. Mm. Wow. But that's very interesting. And I don't want to get on that tangent because I want to wait till you finish Valhalla before we talk about that. Well, uh, I'm just telling you, it's going to be a while. <laughs> I know. So. Berg eventually finds the location of the Koinor. However, with the help of Elijah, quote unquote, Miles, even though he does not use that surname. Eventually, he eventually becomes to possess it and takes it for himself while he's seemingly working for the instruments. However, Violet DaCosta, who is kind of like the lead, the quote unquote leader of the instruments of the first will, even though they claim they have no leader because their leader is Juno, she does not trust Elijah, which she shouldn't because surprise, surprise, he ends up betraying the instruments with the Koinor because they killed his mother and he's pissed about it. And he uses it to basically kill a bunch of the instruments to take down Violet DaCosta, to destroy, basically immobilize the body of the resurrected Juno so that Charlotte de la Cruz can kill her and destroy the Shroud of Eden, like the original Shroud that has consciousness um, mind in it. Then after the conflict, Elijah escapes with the Koinor, where it remains to this day. So do you when you say it remains to this day, do you mean it remains with Elijah or we just don't know where it is? It remains with Elijah. Where's Elijah? We don't know. Well, to the wind. Remember that Elijah, in hiding. Elijah is a sage. Right. So who knows what's going on? That's interesting. Well, um, do you want to move on to powers? Yes. And then we'll kind of talk about my own theory about the Koinor. And I have more thoughts. Yes. The Koinor can project illusions. Though they are not as powerful as the illusions that an apple or staff of Eden can project. So an apple, like if you remember with Ezio's fight with Rodrigo Borgia... He possesses, he like basically copies himself. And these illusions can physically interact with the world. They make sound. There's no distinguishing. There's no way to tell which one is the real Ezio and which one is not. The illusions are not really real from the Koinor. Um, they can, it can release very powerful bursts of lightning like Juno uses to kill the humans. It can store an Isu consciousness, which I assume that all pieces of Eden can do that at this point. And it can find other pieces of Eden. And so this is where my theory comes into it. I don't think the Koinor is a piece of Eden at all. I think it is what all pieces of Eden are based upon. I was going to ask if you think it's a compass. It could be a compass. 
But I think that it's grand power. And there's a theory that only a god or Isu or a woman can wield the Koinor. Now, Elijah is a weird example because he's a sage. But everyone else who uses it, anyone who can control it has been an Isu or a woman. What do women have to do with it? I don't know. It's just a it's just the history track it. That's um, just the fan theory. Yes. But I just I think that this is something that instead of being developed by the Isu, I think the Isu found this and used it as a basis to create the other pieces of Eden. Almost like how in Dragon Age, lyrium fuels everything, like this diamond being the fuel for all other kinds of pieces of meat, which I think, again, makes sense because diamonds, like, don't they come from coal? Yes, really and, compressed coal. And coal, you know, fueled the world for a really long time. Right. And I think that another thing to point at this is, like, almost all of the pieces of Eden are connected to an Isu who created them. This one has no origin whatsoever. That we know of. That we know of. So I think that this similar to, you know, like humanity discovering the mass relays or even like in a Mass Effect, the Asari having the Prothean beacon there, jumping forth their technology. I think the East, the ancient Isu before they ever rose it, found the Koinor and it jumped them forward so much. And the reason that it can find other pieces of Eden is because the other pieces of Eden are based off of it. That makes complete sense. I mean, it's not canon, but it's canon to me. Right. I think, and I think this kind of sheds light into the fact that like, the Isu, it wasn't just time that did that. Like the Isu were in a, in a circumstance that jumped them forward and then they created humanity. It's only, you know, it, we could end up just finding out that we're in kind of like a cycle thing, like in Mass Effect. And there was a group before the Isu and they're the ones who made the Koinor. Yeah, I mean, I would not be surprised. It would be a little bit reductive or redundant at this point mm -hmm. to do something other video games have already done, but it, I, it totally tracks the way that you're explaining it. Right. So that's what that's what I really think about it. So do you have any other thoughts of the Koinor or anything else? I don't have more thoughts on the Koinor. It's interesting for sure. But earlier in the episode, you said that you think that King Charles III, the current King of England, is a Templar. I have an opinion that I've been developing and simmering on in okay. the background of this episode. I don't think Charles is either an assassin or a Templar because the power of the crown has been diminished so much in the past, like 70 mm. years. I don't think that either the assassins or the Templars find it beneficial to have him on their side. That's fair. That's a fair point. I also have opinions, TM trademark about Charles. So. I mean, you could probably make a pretty good game where you're trying to race through whatever kind of... Because, yes, the power of the crown has been diminished, but they still hold a large political sway, and they're in front of the public a lot. So having a Templar in that position could still be useful. 
Yeah, no, I don't disagree with that. I just think that they both Templars and Assassins probably find the time that it would take to convert the royal family to either side not worth it. Now, I could see some of the advisors or the runners of like what's called the uh the estate of the royal family or whatever. Like the royal rota, the advisors, the press secretaries, all of that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. These people who follow that around and even like even to the point of like maybe Charles in his own way is not putting forth the a Templar agenda. And so they orchestrate this whole thing with Camilla and Diana to discredit him. I don't think he needs anyone else to discredit him. I think he's done that fine and dandy on his own. Um, But I see your point. (laughs) I'm sorry to anyone who's an English listener. If you're a royalist, I'm sorry. I'm just an American. Okay. Our country decided when it was founded to get rid of nobility. So we as Americans growing up don't really have an understanding of it. And so we don't come at it with the best light. We have no reverence. That's what you mean. Yes, we have no reverence for the nobility. But we don't have have a reverence for our own government. So We don't have reverence for a lot of things. That's true. That's true. (laughs) We don't even have reverence for the things we say we have reverence for. I know, I know. So um, is there anything else you have that you want to talk about with the diamond? No, I don't think so. It's a very, I enjoyed this research. It was very interesting. Yeah, I really liked this one. Well, let's wrap it up and get out of here. Thank you so much for listening to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. You can find us on Twitter at Assassin's Creed Lorecast, or you could talk to us on Discord in the Robots Radio Discord or our personal Discord server. Both links found in this episode's descriptions. Thank you for listening, and always stay to the shadows to serve the light, Assassins. Well, do you know your video game lovers? Have you ever wondered how your video game bays stack up against all the other delectable digital dates? I'm Genesis, the girl whose motto in life is love, laugh, tequila. And on Two Girls, One Ship, we analyze, rate, and review all that the world of video game romances has to offer. And I'm Vervada, the hopeless romantic cat lady and lifelong gamer. But you should know that our podcast centers on character and romance analysis and doesn't shy away from exploring the fun of physical connection. Or from the deep emotional connections built between two characters, using specific in-game dialogue and the overall narrative journey. So join the two girls, one ship, shipsters, and remember... Beauty is in the eye of the controller.